you remember what yours is? Nope. On the streets of Dublin. Yeah, no, I do. Should I attempt it with an Irish accent? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> okay. Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, how anxiety manifests on the streets of Dublin and hamsters in the bathtub. This is Obstacle Course. Let's go. So, Andrew, your mom made me some peanut butter cookies this morning because I don't want to call her out on the podcast, but there wasn't any last week. <laughs> and, uh, like, I realize she's probably has other things to do than make me peanut butter cookies. But I'm glad she did because they are freaking amazing. You know what? It, she knows how much it matters because <laughs> I was driving away last night because not only do we use my mom's wonderful Judy's uh, home as our podcast studio, I also use it to store equipment in for my business. So I was driving down the driveway last night saying goodbye, and the last thing she said was, there's cookies in the cookie jar. <laughs> and she knows that she's not saying that for me. No. She, she's saying that for you. I don't even eat the cookies. Because you, yeah, you don't eat them. What? I never have. I don't know. Are you I not a cookie never, guy? or not really a baked goods guy. Really? No. But see, here's, here's the crazy thing. I've never been a baked goods guy, but I love your mom's peanut butter cookies. Mm. I mean, and you know, I know we talked a couple episodes ago about squishing bananas on them. I haven't tried that yet. No, and I'd rather you didn't. They're good without the bananas. I mean, they're 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 awesome. That no. means a lot. I don't think she actually listens to the podcast, but if she, if she does, happen to tune in for this one, I, she'll probably feel a little bit warm inside. Yeah. So Judy, if you're listening, I don't know what you do, but what you do is amazing. They're soft <laughs> and just, okay. Okay. Oh this is, my god. It's my mother you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. We talked a little bit earlier today about how when we were starting the podcast, we were looking at Reddit articles and. <laughs> And they said, yeah. you know, just, I hate it when two guys just get on there and just talk, start talking about random shit and <laughs> just get to funny. the point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just come on. Like, we don't want to hear you banter. And then, and we're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to talk about real stuff and we're going to be eloquent and insightful and <laughs> peanut butter cookies. <laughs> peanut butter cookies. And by the way, I have to tell you, you called me out a couple episodes ago. You call me a shit driver. Actually, you didn't call me a shit driver. I call myself a shit driver, to which you were like, you didn't put up a fight. No, I absolutely I mean, agreed. Yeah, you did agree, and you told the heartwarming story of how I don't know how to freaking, you know, drive you anywhere, even though it's seven minutes away. And, and then, uh, since then, you took a left turn into oncoming traffic <laughs> and nearly caused the end of your podcast partner. Yeah, exactly. In the, in the seat right beside you. So... I understand something happened and listeners we don't we don't talk about what we're going to talk about in our intros before we start recording so the reactions that you hear are genuine so you mentioned that you something happened last night yeah man okay so I found out on Facebook that a really good friend who I haven't seen for 11 years from Calgary was in where I thought was Port Renfrew because I saw on his Facebook, he was posting some pictures, and I was like, "Oh man, you're on the island!" And I actually said that in the comments, "Oh man, you're on the island." And he's like, "He's like, yeah, man, we'd we'd love to see you, but we're like in Port Renfrew." So I private message him. And I didn't get the hint that you know, hey, we just want our family vacation time. <laughs> I actually private message him, and I was like, "Well, man, if if you want, I, we can come to you. You know, we we haven't been to Port Renfrew in a long time. I always love going to Port Renfrew, and we'll come on out. We'll have a good old night." And by his response, I could tell he actually wanted us to come. He's like, "We'd love to see you!" Exclamation! Exclamation! And I said, you come Tuesday night, uh, it'll, be great. it'll be great. So 
Um, that was last night, and Angie and I jumped in the car about 3.30. We said we'd bring some island wine, which we did, and we just started driving. All I knew was it was on 5544 Seaside Drive, Port Renfrew. That's what it said on Fiona. You all know Fiona is my <laughs> Google Google Maps. Fiona Apple. Fiona Apple, yeah. And so we're listening to Fiona, but if you know anything about Port Renfrew... And nobody yeah. knows anything about Port Renfrew, so tell us where Port Renfrew is, Okay. John. Well, <laughs> this is part of the obstacle right here. So I thought I knew where Port Renfrew was, but I live in the Cowichan, as you know. And so I went the back way, which is through Lake Cowichan. And then basically right after Lake Cowichan, there starts to be these like apocalyptic looking signs where it's like, just so you know, there's like no gas or service or anything for the next 60 kilometers. It's like you're entering a vortex. Of well, it's a it's a brand new highway. There didn't used to even be roads in this part of Vancouver Island because we're it's a pretty... Like the west side of Vancouver Island, like next stop, Japan. <laughs> yeah, like no, for sure. You've got nasty weather. <laughs> yeah. You've got rugged conditions. and So rugged. And yeah, it's there's not a lot out there. And the roads are twisty as hell. Yeah, they're fun. I mean, so twisty. Except yeah. if you're driving. You say, yeah. <laughs> you say fun. Most people tend to get sick on them if they're not driving. And so um, we were we were kind of running a bit late, which is not... By, by un- most people, you mean your family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not, not unusual for us to be running a bit late. So I was kind of going for it. And we're going along. Of course, we have no service. Uh, we get to Port Renfrew. It start, it's raining by that point. It's starting to, get, starting to get a little bit dark. And we pull into the Wild Renfrew Pub, which is kind of like the main pub in Port Renfrew. Now, another good thing about Port Renfrew, as an aside here, is... Uh, a lot of people come to the island to hike the uh, famed West Coast Trail. Yeah. Well, Port Renfrew is one of the starting points, I believe. It is. Or, the, or an ending point, I guess. Well, yeah, you yeah. can you can go north, south, or south, north. But it's at the southern uh, point of the West Coast Trail, which... Have you done that? I have way? done it, yeah. You have? Yeah, I did oh, it man. three years ago. It was amazing. Really? Yeah. See, I've it, never gone. It was a, uh, a life-changing experience. It was... Yeah, I've done a few wilderness hikes, and that was... Definitely takes the top spot. It It's... Um, yeah, it was ama- amazing. So highly recommended. Yeah, it, you can't get any more uh, quintessential West Coast hiking experience. And um, yeah, just being out there and, and be hiking and seeing whales like moving along. Um, saw bear. Uh, oh. But it's, it's, it's more about the time just in nature and spent in your own mind and, and the richness of and diversity there's so many different little ecosystems that you pass through and, and beach walking and on the shelf and and then also you're going up ladders yeah they're like <laughs> 50 runs in a ladder <laughs> and down into a valley where you're like in push-up position climbing down the ladders it's it's wow. a m- mentally taxing it's physically taxing but it's um it's it was uh, one of my experience highlights experience for sure. of a lifetime yeah, yeah definitely not a stroll it's not a stroll and it's not just a, like it's a, about a week-long hike too is yeah it, is we, it not seven days six nights yeah seven days yeah highly recommend i still haven't done it but but port renfrew tends to be a, a hub of sort of where you begin or end it so anyways there's no service there so if service is important to you folks uh you might not want to go to port renfrew for the day but we did go because we're going to see my good friend we get to the pub the reason why we had to go to the pub is because fiona wasn't on because she wasn't working and I knew if I just got to Port Renfrew, then I could just get into a pub, get the Wi-Fi, turn on the Google Maps just for like the last two seconds, right? Because it would be like, oh, it's just a couple blocks that way. Or I'd ask the pub owner, hey, do you know where Seaside Drive is? And I asked him that. I was like, hey, do you know where Seaside Drive is? He's like, got no idea, man. 
And I was like, what? How, like, this is not a big town. And that was my first kind of trepidation. I was like, hmm, that's, that's weird that the pub owner doesn't know where Seaside Drive is. Seaside Drive. So uh, I finally got on the Wi-Fi, got the, got the password, which is Port Renfrew, by the way. That's a, <laughs> I don't think they're worried about hackers. <laughs> that was the password. Uh, and so I type in Port Renfrew, put on Google Maps, put, put the thing up, and it says 57 minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> no seriously 57 minutes away and she's in the bathroom at the time she comes out and she's like you ready to go and i was like yeah 57 minutes away and she's like uh. and i was like no look and i showed it to her and the look that she gave me after that I w- i'm not going to say it was full of love <laughs> it was just was like how the fuck did this happen again i mean <laughs> she would never use that word but that was the look that, that mm-hmm. it gave to me disdain disdain like so yeah disdain was there any uh <laughs> semblance of predictability in there as well (laughs) yeah and see that's why she was so upset because you know i would be an absolute lying son of a bitch if i said this was the first time i've gotten lost (laughs) as you've heard from past episodes i get lost you know on the way from my studio to whole foods every single week so anyways um it's 57 minutes and and i felt in that moment oh i just need to keep it positive so i was like well 57 minutes let's go it's a nice drive in the rugged port renfrew let's go 57 minutes together honey <laughs> yeah. let's enjoy I, it. I was trying to sell this and she was like oh my gosh we just drove for an hour and a half like we, you know she she was she was just saying like i don't think we can do this we don't have time you have to record tomorrow this was last night folks and and my whole thing was like well you know they're they're planning on us for supper so you're playing that whole game and so i'm like okay we just drive for an hour i like looked on the clock on the car one hour i did the kilometers okay 55 kilometers we got it because you have to go real slow because the windy roads so we're going after about an hour we're like we're not seeing seaside drive and we're getting closer and closer to souk and angie's starting to doubt me no yeah <laughs> and i and i'm doubting me but i have to be the like you know picture of confidence mm. oh we got this huh no well that's a seaside drive up there i bet you that's it yeah it doesn't say seaside driving i bet it's so believable now that picture of confidence <laughs> the sound of confidence <laughs> yeah and so um finally all of a sudden we hit like this gap in the in the vortex and boom boom our, our phone started beeping because all of a sudden we got a glimmer of, of service from somewhere. And and our map shows up and it's like 24 minutes away. And we've been driving for an hour. And I was like, well, that's impossible. I was like, we must have passed it. And, you know, Angie was, um, you know, at that point starting to lose patience, <laughs> understandably. And I was even starting to lose patience. So it was fine. So she's like, 24 minutes. Well, okay, we obviously passed it. So I turned around and then immediately said 17 minutes, which was, which was promising. And then we drove and drove and drove, and then we finally discovered that Seaside Drive is actually off another drive. So that's why we missed it the first time. So we finally got there, and and in the end, I felt so bad. We had told we had told these we told our friends that we'd be there at five. This is their family vacation. They said they were gonna like cook the salmon they caught that day. I mean, they got they got young kids, so they're probably starving. We pulled in at six thirty and. They were very, very, you know, graceful and and you know didn't make us feel bad. And the they, kid, the kids were like, "Well, we're fine. No, I wasn't hungry at all." You know, they like, might have even been gracious in addition to graceful. <laughs> oh my god, I butchered another word. Yeah, they were both, and we ended up having a lovely night. Um, Angie had said before we got in there, she's like, "You know, we're, we're we don't have much time now because you got to get back and record." I was like, "Let the conversation flow, honey. Let's not even look at the clock." Well, when we did look at the clock, it was it was midnight, and I was like, "Oh boy!" So we drove back, and I had a very short um, night, but uh, it was it was amazing. So, 
So I, I tell these stories mostly not to just show what a dumbass I am because all the listeners know that already. But, uh, you know, what you might not know, folks, is Andrew's, one of, besides running Twist, he is a licensed coach. And so what I want to know, coach, what the hell is wrong with me? Why, why can I not? Why, why am I? Why can I not drive anywhere without getting lost? Am I? Am I? Am I a dumbass? Um, is like. Well, as a licensed coach, I'm not just going to say you're a dumbass. I think that would be uh, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't make for a long coaching contract. No, for sure. Um, so my question for you is, why is it your responsibility to both drive and navigate? Well, so you're putting it on Angie. That's that's the angle you're going. Well, for. not necessarily. I love this. I love where you're going with this. Well, yeah, awesome. So I'm yeah, not. That is a great question. Not exactly your from fault, a, from a coach perspective, but just from a knowing you perspective. I know that you're a, you'd like to. Oh, I see where you're going with. You like to be in control. Control. There's the word. The c word. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah, perhaps it would be helpful if you ceded some control and and mm-hmm. allowed somebody else to worry about the directions and you could just do the driving you know you yeah great great point and i think i've been even open about that before yes i i do i do have a strange relationship with control i do like it <laughs> <laughs> but but here's the weird thing is is it's not that it's not that much control because obviously i'm still not getting to the places mm-hmm. and so i'm uh, it's the idea but, of control but you, you you said it earlier you're like I put on my confident voice, like I know where I'm going, and like I got this, honey. Right, right. And and uh, and then you get lost. Yeah. So so what so, is so what so what's going on there? So what what do you think you could change to enable you to not get into these circumstances? Uh, well, honestly, don't assume that I know before I really know. Are you telling that to yourself or to others? No, to me. <laughs> no, I'm not telling it to others. I assume everyone else has figured out how to get from point A to point B. But yeah, don't assume that. It's like when I when I try and tell a story on the podcast, some t- or when I used to try and tell stories back in my speaking career, I, I would be shit at telling stories because I would start telling it before I knew where I was going. Mm-hmm. And Angie gave me this anal- analogy last night. And she's like, I think you do the same thing with driving. Is you get this, you get excited. Hey, we're going to Port Renfrew. I love that place. I generally know where that is. And you start driving and you just think based on your confidence, John, oh, I'll figure it out along the way. If I get lost, I'll just ask somebody. You'll be fine. So is it your ego driving? Yeah. Damn you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we talked about this with Jason and I believe episode 10, talking about the ego driving and it's going to come along whether or not we like it. And yeah, so I think, I think what I'm hearing from you, coach, is I need to, first of all, maybe let the ego go in the back seat don't let him backseat drive um and perhaps have a little more humility in the depths of my knowledge on where i'm going <laughs> or just look at freaking google maps before i leave and follow it all the way down the rabbit hole instead of just looking at it and being like oh, okay i generally see the blue line continues but but actually follow it through but yeah, there's there's probably some ego there, some misconfidence, some stubbornness, uh, some bad habits because I've done this for years. Angie says I've done this for we've been married 22 years. I've been doing. She's like you've done this ever since I've known you. Like this is not a new thing. So yeah, so yeah, folks. There's a little uh, five minute uh, idea of what a coaching session could look like with that with Andrew and uh, th- what he does brilliantly is he asks you the questions you should probably be asking yourselves because we all probably have the answers to our problems. So we I think we did an interview today. Yeah, that was great. Do I owe you for this? Or am no. I going to get an invoice? You're going to 
You even get me a burrito. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so we had a, a guest Oh, yeah, on. right. We had a guest on. <laughs> this wasn't just about me. <laughs> Shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, we had a guest on from uh, Ireland. Yeah, Christine Ryan. She joined us from Ireland. Nope. Actually, no. She was here in the room. Yeah, she was. Yeah. But she is from Ireland. Correct. And she has a... a Irish accent. A lovely Irish accent. <laughs> and um, a, a beautiful story. Yes. And it's one of definitely overcoming adversity and... And it was a great example in, and, and part of the reason that I understand that she was doing this was to illustrate that um, at this point in her life, she she's, from the outside perspective, successful. Yeah. She uh, lives a good life. She's happy. She is, is able to not only work a, a job that she's doing really well in with Sotheby's Real Estate, which has a, a great reputation and also sit on boards and and be a member of the community and give back so from someone looking at that they might think wow she's really got it all together she's uh she's probably never had any struggle in her entire life yeah which is what we see with success often or that's the narrative that we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. and and this was a great example of getting to know that there's a lot more to someone's story than we might just believe in our five second evaluation yeah, because people might listen to this and think that I'm actually wise, but then through this intro, they've discovered that I'm actually a dumbass. <laughs> well, <laughs> but but I try and try and project that I'm wise. Yeah, is but, that is that dumbass word uh, a healthy way to? No, speak it's to not. Yourself, yeah, I John. forgot. We're still in coach mode. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But no, this, this whole episode, um, we we talked a lot about image and and how people see us versus how we see ourselves and this is really the heart of the obstacle course and we probably touch on this in every episode in some way and it's a very important question to ask yourself you know are you living a version for others or are you living the best you can be and in, in, in striving for your own truth and i think that's where we want to be i would certainly agree and and let's uh let's all work towards a less judgmental culture okay you're a good driver, John. <laughs> let's, let's still perceive reality as it is. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I need to work on my self-talk. Enjoy, everybody. As we begin, we just want to welcome you into the podcast, and thank you for being here, Christine. And we're, we're thrilled to have you and our, our first... Uh, person of irish descent on the podcast so um, people have been crying for it. they're like where's the irish in this podcast 100 percent irish beef import <laughs> <laughs> they branded me when they sent me out <laughs> well we're yeah we're thrilled to have you and um yeah we're we're excited to share your your story mm. and what you do now with our listeners and uh and get to know you a little bit let's start just by introducing, uh, we won't start from the beginning. We don't like to start from the beginning. We like to start from kind of the, the present. So mm-hmm. now in, in your current form, you're, mm-hmm. uh, you're a, a realtor with Sotheby's. You, mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of success in recent years. Mm-hmm. And you have had the opportunity to sit on some boards and do some volunteer work. Mm-hmm. Even um, judge uh, debates mm-hmm. for Brentwood College, I yes, believe. yes. And so why don't you just tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like in the the present. Working as a realtor is, it's seven days a week. It's practically 24 hours a day. When you work for such a high-profile 
company brokerage, such as Sotheby's International Realty Canada, there's a lot that is expected of you in terms of your performance. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a part-time gig. It's not a side hustle. It's it's a, a career. It's a, it's business. And we are monitored to make sure that we are giving the best service to our clients, regardless of what end of the market they're in. First-time buyers, somebody who's upsizing, somebody who's downsizing, somebody who's moving into... Um, like a senior's home or whatnot, or people who are selling an estate on behalf of their family. It's about the service that we give. I love what I do. I find it very, very challenging and difficult because I take it so seriously. So how did how did you begin making? Because I I know you worked in not as a realtor when you were in Ireland, but in in the same field because mm. I think it, it works differently. Yes, on that side of the pond. Yes, we don't have realtors. I didn't know what a realtor was when I first moved here. Um, my background is in, my well, my father was a bricklayer uh, turned property speculator and his idea of a, a fun family Sunday afternoon was to take us out in our beater and um, drive us around and point out houses to us and construction sites and point out the good ones and the bad ones. Yeah. And of course, no air conditioning and we were just so bored and hated every second of it and wanted to, you know when is the ice cream coming yeah. um so we were clubbed over the head with real estate from a young age um so he was a speculator yeah is, later in life is, yeah uh is that similar to an appraiser in no no he invested okay. he invested my, in, my dad was an appraiser which oh was, really yeah he was a property oh. appraiser for bc assessment so oh. i just just thought i'd ask right yeah oh. huh. hmm no, so he he purchased later in life. He purchased properties and sold them, and he did very very well for himself. And he wanted me to follow in his footsteps. And he saw that I would work with him in the family business. And of course, I wanted to do my own thing. And I was quite a bookish little thing, so <laughs> I <laughs> I loved school and I loved study and. Uh, I wanted to study law um, and I came home one day and I announced that I was going to go to college after school. I wanted to be one of the few, probably the only person on my street who went to college. I had great, great ideas for myself and I was in no uncertain terms told this is not a home for the bewildered. You're absolutely not going to college because I'm not paying for you yeah. to go to college just because we have some money now. Um, this is how it's going to go. And my father laid out the next few years for me. Again, in no uncertain terms. What, this is what you're going to what do. What age were you then? 17 was when we do our leaving cert, which is our, our finals. Yeah. Yeah. How did that, how did you take that? I had no choice. Mm -hmm. I had no choice. I had to do it. So I wasn't happy with it. But this is the way it was, um, where I come from. You're told what your life is going to be like. You don't have a say in that. When you're that age, the expression is you don't know your arse from your elbow. <laughs> so yep. what would you know about what would you know about going to college? Should look at you. You're 17, you know, yeah. just gone 18, whatnot. So I was told that I was getting um, I had an interview lined up. My father 
had a connection and um, his the connection's wife was um, she was in HR for a large bank Irish bank so I went to the interview I was told not to mess it up and I didn't mess it up because I had the wrath of my father to face if I did so I came home I got the job they loaned me some money to buy my first couple of suits and I went to work as a bank teller and I didn't know my arse from my elbow. I was quite a, um, I would say, woman child. I had a job. I got wages, but I had to be home. I had a curfew. I had to stay at home. I handed over my wages. I was given a little bit to buy, you know, some clothes for myself or go out with my friends. But it was very, <clears throat> very controlled. And I didn't have a say in what happened to me. But that was... I didn't know any different and this was my family's way of protecting me and making sure that I got the right start in life as opposed to going off to college at such a young age and probably not paying a blind bit of attention. You know, the the value of hard work is something that was instilled into me from a very young age and these notions, that's what they were seen as notions of me going to college and not actually working or paying my own way that was not going to happen I was told when you're 23 you can go back as a mature student and you can pay for yourself then so save up now but until then this is how it's going to be yeah so it wasn't just a question of money that your parents didn't want you to go to college there were some other reasons as well it seemed like they had the money they didn't want to give it to me because it didn't my ideas didn't gel with their right morals or their idea of how life is and how it should be so um i'm grateful for that in a sense because i think i might actually do the same thing with my daughter i think it's i didn't like it at the time and i probably won't do it as severely i probably won't do it as I let her have a say in how her life goes, but I would like to instill the same early values into her that were instilled into me. I think, you know, I was raised by very flawed individuals, but who ultimately had my best interest at heart. And I'm a flawed individual with my child's best interest at heart. And I'll, I'll learn from where my folks went wrong and I'll try and uh, do the best with my daughter. and. I like a lot of I'll take the good aspects of what they did with me and I will do that yeah. with her but, uh, absolutely and we're all flawed and we all do the best we can um, you mentioned that you would definitely be the only person on your street to go to college so maybe maybe describe a little bit about well first of all if, if can you share what town this was and what <laughs> what life was like on the street mm, yeah just so we can get a bit more of a visual yeah so um I'm from Dublin City and I'm from the north side of Dublin and for those out there who do not know, do not know what the difference is between the north side and the south side of Dublin, um, one could call it the wrong side of Dublin, it's <laughs> okay. not the, the south side is um, more, res- it's seen as more respectable, it's more affluent, whereas the north side is people see it as a bit of a no man's land it's a bit it's great I mean I when I first met my husband he's Canadian he was living 
on the south side of Dublin. And I very quickly changed that. I said, no, no, no. Sorry, boy. <laughs> You're coming over to the real side. You're coming over to the real Dublin. So as soon as we were um, serious in getting married, we uh, we lived the rest of our time in Ireland on the north side. And he saw the difference in cultures and yeah. just across the bridge, just across the bridge and the difference in the people mm. and the lifestyle and the the day to day living and the sense of community was just everybody had to pull together. So Ireland in the 70s and 80s, just to go back to answer your quest, answering your question, Ireland in the 70s and 80s was very um, hmm, bleak, relatively poor. Um, there was a lot of oppression from the church. Yeah, so um, we also had, we burned coal up until the 90s. So, yeah. So it looked, it was very smoggy all the time, which I actually thought was quite, looking back, I, I, I thought it was very pretty because you couldn't see two feet in front of you. And then when the sun sets, when it was time for sunset, it would be just so beautiful. Mm. Everything would turn this gorgeous, polluted shade of orange. But it was quite <laughs> romantic. It was quite pretty, actually, mm. for me as a child. Um, so we lived in that through that orange haze of uh, coal burning. And um, my father, like I said, was a bricklayer, but there was very little work, right. very, very little work. And when you were working, the tax rate was so high. 85 percent what so there's really what's the point um yeah. but my dad he he's i would say a workaholic so he he went to the states he lived in new york for a time and um, he would go back and forth he'd work on the building sites over there and uh, send the money back so when he was working he was self-employed self-motivated person when he was working we had what we had and when he wasn't working we had what everybody else had, which was absolutely nothing. Mm. And um, the street that I lived on, Animo Terrace, um, I still dream about it quite often. It, um, it was an interesting mix of people. In fact, just on our little street, one of the guys across the road, he, Steve Collins, if anybody Googles him, they will see that he became a very, very famous boxer. Mm-hmm. This was a very, I don't want to tell his story, but very, very shy uh, person, very quiet, unassuming, um, friends of our family, and an unassuming guy who wanted to excel in his field. But, you know, because maybe where he came from, he's just a, a quiet lad, unassuming, like I say. But he, through the power of, I think he did CBT, which is something that I later did myself. Um, through CBT, he worked with um, Paul Golden, He's an American, um, I think he's a hypnotist and psychotherapist and whatnot. When they met, he trained Steve's mind. And, and that's became cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive right? Cognitive behavioral yes. therapy, yes. Okay. So through that, he became the world champion. He he fought in Madis- Madison Square Gardens. Really? And yeah. He, oh. And he took on a persona, the Celtic warrior, because he yeah. was who he was and perhaps he wasn't comfortable with who he was and he couldn't be the champ if he was just Steve he became this other entity when he was fighting and he would say I am the best I am the best and he beat 
he beat world champions and became the world champion himself. So that was one person who did very, very well. And I was very impressed by when I was little. Um, do you think <clears throat> Do you think that was symbolic of the the Dublin, the North Dublin street fighter mentality that uh, that he grew up in? And, and do you think you have a part of that in yourself as well? I think if I say that I do, <laughs> I think it would sound to me like I'm praising myself. I like to think that I'd like to say yes, but I'm not the world champion of anything. I'm just me. I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly, I don't think I have, quite frankly, I don't think I have reached my, my full potential yet. I do feel that maybe I never will. But isn't that the beauty of of this journey? Mm-hmm. It's go. It's a journey. It's mm-hmm. not about the destination, which is very cheesy, but it is the journey, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's it's exciting. Yeah. What's uh, what's what's important to distinguish though is a journey, but not necessarily a chase. Mm. And one of our past oh. guests, Jason Dorland, talked about um, as an Olympian continuing to chase this this uh, level of success to where he th- he would be healed once he got a gold medal mm. and he talked about when that didn't happen and, and he was devastated um he had to reevaluate things and and um you know 30 years later he has stopped chasing and so i just wanted to distinguish that a little bit is mm. is, is sometimes we can say well i'm just on a journey and hopefully i'll arrive one day and 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 it's important to also love and accept yourself for who you are and what you've already done and and not necessarily always be chasing because uh well, we can't all be world champions no we right? can't no. right and, and um yeah I, I guess it's good to have it's good to have um goals and mm. it's good to push yourself and and but just the chase it, it it's almost like a chasing a tail or something well and it's like instead of focusing on being a world champion how can we be a champion of our own lives yes um, right. and and yeah. and what is our potential and and how do we know when we get there really mm. how do you answer that question like, yeah mm. what is what is full potential andrew or john or christine like what does that even look like and um yeah how will you know when you're when you've arrived oh i don't think i will yeah. <laughs> and i don't expect to really well when i think about it on a yeah. different level Mm-hmm. And human nature, when you do kind of arrive, you're like, but but I haven't, because now I can do this. Now I want a little more. Now mm. I want to, like, I find that with me as soon as, as soon as you, you play the game and, and you, you get the score, then you're mm. like, well, let's move the goalposts a little bit. And, you know, it, yeah. it, it changes a little bit. Yeah. Or, or let's, let's up, you know, let's up the ante or. Yeah. yeah. Or when some folks think, um, for example, you know, when I get married that, oh, everything will just feel right. Or when I have a child, everything will feel right. When I have this perfect job, yeah. when I lose weight, yeah. when I etc. 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 But that's it's it's one cannot be fulfilled, and I think you know a lot of folks have spoken about this in the podcast. One cannot be fulfilled by externalities. You can only fulfill yourself. Yeah, and yeah, well, maybe you can't well even do that, but you can try. So one question I had is growing up in that in that very poor you you talk about being or bleak very bleak yeah sure let's use the word bleak yeah um does that create this desire to to 
to arrive or to to find the success or to change perhaps an image yes that you had growing up oh absolutely yeah. without a shadow of a doubt john yeah yes it's there's a certain chip on the shoulder or defensiveness that i carry around mm-hmm. because of where i came from it's a scrappy kind of attitude and I think that that has held me in good stead in a lot of ways, but coming from that perspective is, it can be quite negative as well. And I want to, I strive to come from a place of positivity and love as Mm. opposed to poor me, this happened to me, but I got through it. And there's a great strength in that, but that can destroy a person as well. That's a great point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that idea of the the boxer across the street and and your father, the bricklayer, and that toughness and that strength that mm-hmm. it develops, but also then, what are some of the negativities that that come along with that, and and how can that, how can you harness that kind of grit and mm. and strength of will mm. without letting it kind of tarnish the perspective? Yeah. So how how did you navigate that struggle, or how do you still? <laughs> yeah, I know it's a big question. Um, it, it's it's so difficult to find the balance, right? Because um, we all have a bit of that, a, a bit of uh, a complicated relationship with our childhood, and, and we struggle to mm. we struggle to not be always reacting against, say, perhaps something that was said to us. Some people who have been bullied often, yeah. you know, are always trying to prove themselves. Um, I, I've seen that a bit of myself at, at points in my life. And it, it always just turns everything to dog shit. Yes. I mean, honestly, yeah. it, it never turns out well. And so harnessing that, like Andrew's talking about, that drive, which is so important, but still operating from a place of love. Mm. That, I mean, that's maybe the the challenge of our lives, really, and mm. which is probably why it's difficult for you to answer that question. It is quite difficult. Um, I, it, we were poor, but everybody was poor. Mm-hmm. Everybody was. And there were, my folks were flawed and my father was very um, controlling because he wanted the best for us, but still very, very controlling and laid down the law. Um, But he would also take us around in the car as well as show us homes, but show us what other people had as in the good stuff and the bad stuff and he would take us to places that were worse a lot worse than where we came from we were relatively okay compared to some other people because their other children didn't have parents that were ambitious and wanted to get them out of the mire you know and my father wanted he always had a very strong sense of community and instilled that in us we fostered kids when we were little um i mean this man adopted me it was his idea to adopt he wanted to do something good for somebody else he always did he's a very very generous man in that regard um so yeah they they adopted me um and then they had my sister two years afterwards so she was a little she was a little miracle Hmm. Yeah. What age were you adopted at? I'm not exactly sure. I was a, 
I don't really know. I, I don't know. I was about, I was about one. So I was quite young. Um, I was born to a woman who was alone. She, she had cerebral palsy and she was engaged to a gentleman who stood her up at the altar basically mm. and she was pregnant by then so he denied me this is this is according to this lady so he denied that I was I was his and whatnot and um so she was encouraged by some friends to put me into uh, an orphanage for adoption because the way I see it is what kind of life would I have had with this this woman she didn't have the resources she didn't have the capabilities to look after me. She was she was giving me a gift of life. Mm. And I didn't find out a lot of this um, in terms of the details uh, of her circumstances until I was in my 30s. Um, but I, I don't harbor any ill will or resentment towards that woman because mm. she gave me the gift of life. She was doing her best for me to keep me would have been, I think, selfish. What kind of life would I have had? Right. A single mother with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm who worked a menial job as a cook, which is not menial, but her inability to look after me and her her personal difficulties. And she was without somebody that she thought she could trust. And specifically in that time and place too. Yeah, lack which of was, services. Which was challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I was I was born on a Sunday night, and apparently the uh, she told me that uh, the blue tango was playing when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Some crazy song, um, and I was quite ill when I was born, and I got the last rites and everything. I was full term, but I was tiny. I was like four pounds or something, mm. um, in in an incubator for a few months, and I ate everything, get, drank all the bottles that they gave me, and I became very very strong and chubby. <laughs> and then I went into the orphanage and we were in in a place where um, I understand that it was not the most effectively run institution um, and it was later closed down because of sexual abuse mm-hmm. um, that was quite prevalent mm-hmm. um, I was quite young I'd imagine I wasn't mm-hmm. um, subject to that kind of abuse mm-hmm. but it ultimately it wasn't a good a good place so um when my folks went to visit this orphanage they immediately um they immediately said we need to take one of these children and uh, mm. i was there yeah. <laughs> and i was waving <laughs> wow. i wanted to get out in, so uh, in a sense they, they rescued you yeah they did i yeah. would say and my mom says when she when she took me home in the car i was holding her little finger in my hand Hmm. and looking out the window and then looking at her you know where am I going Hmm. look after me protect me Hmm. so Hmm. yeah I'm very grateful for that yeah I can imagine I can't I can't even imagine it's but that's a it's it's amazing it's beautiful yeah Um, I'm curious how that might have shaped your identity the in those formative years even being so young but being in an orphanage being adopted um how do you think that may have shaped your identity as as you were growing up and and potentially incorporating uh meeting your your birth mother Mm. later on as well 
identity was something that I struggled with hugely hugely because I didn't know anything about where I came from I was told at a young age before I went to school that um, I was special and I had two mommies never a mention of my father never a mention um, so I felt I felt special in a way uh, I also didn't know who I was so I would make up stories I loved I loved old movies I loved my books I loved music and I would fantasize that these Hollywood actors were my parents <laughs> you know yeah, because yeah. at the end of the day anybody who gives up a child for adoption they're not going to have a beautiful backstory it's not going to be a dream you know it's not it's, it's going to be really really difficult for those people for sure and so whatever happened to them that they arrived at this decision was it's it's not for the faint of heart so um i was spun a story by my folks that was really lovely and gorgeous and i think they were actually spun this story through the social workers because it it makes it more palatable shall i say to take on a child that's from a wonderful oh her mother was so beautiful her mother was lived on the south side of dublin her you know um to paint a picture whereby you'd want to take that child and you'd, you'd right yeah i think it makes it easier for the for the um adopt parents um to to take somebody in if they feel that there's a nice there's something positive about those the birth parents um ultimately i learned in my early 30s that this was not the case which shattered me i remember the day that that happened i went to get my file from the adoption services um and interestingly enough their office happened to be about two minute walk from where i grew up so all of those years wondering who I was, where I was from, and that information was a two minute walk away wow. in an office, in a file, mm. so close. Um, yeah, so the, the social worker sat me down and she said that um, she just came out with it and said my, my mother was, um, she was no spring chicken when she had me. She had physical difficulties. She had cerebral palsy. Uh, affecting one side of her body she was getting married to my father my father stood her up at the altar um disowned me and uh, i ended up going to an orphanage and subsequently being adopted so this backstory of this glamorous woman from the south side that i held that all through my life in the palm of my hand like it was some precious flower and i fed that all of my life mm. andrew fed it and in a heartbeat that was shattered mm -hmm. and I cried so hard I left that office I think I actually just got up and walked out and I watched the two minutes back to my mum's house howling like an animal mm -hmm. I was so devastated and shocked and I remember I had a key obviously to the house but I didn't use the key I banged on the window screaming screaming with the tears running down my face because that who I was who I believed that I was where I believe I came from my origins 
that was gone. Who was I? And the hurt that I felt at the lies that I'd been told and my parents had been told. And the pity that I felt for this woman and the sadness that I felt for her and what she went through was overwhelming. And I, yeah, I completely, completely was devastated. And that was a, that was a long dark night of the soul, I tell you. Mm. Well, <laughs> what led you to that night? What led you to go in and finally learn that information in your 30s? Yeah, I've, um, a lot of it was encouragement from my, my mom and dad and my sister to find out where I was from, who I was. It might help me to um, understand a little more. Um, I was a little reluctant, but I did it. And I ultimately met my birth mother. Mm. Yeah. How was that experience? Uh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> for me, and I'm sure for her. I came with uh, the social worker and we met in a hotel lobby. Interestingly enough, when I walked in, I was wearing this little rabbit fur stole that had been gifted to me by uh, an employer of mine um, who I'd worked for for many, many, many years. And this lady was sitting there in her wheelchair and she was wearing one in orange. And you could only get these from one store in County Wicklow outside of Dublin. So we had the similar taste. Hers was more colourful than mine. But we were wearing the same scarf. How mm. odd. Mm-hmm. How odd. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sat there, we chatted, and she brought some people with her. And when I say we sat there and we chatted, that's an absolute lie because we didn't chat. They chatted at me. And I sat there like a decoration, like a handbag to be admired in the corner. Oh, look at how lovely. Who would have thought that your daughter would turn out so lovely? And they talked about me like I wasn't there. Mm. And I was furious. And I was upset. And I didn't say a word on the way back with the social worker. And I was angry at her for not interjecting and helping me. So they just talked about themselves and they talked about their children, her companions. And I'm sure it was difficult for them. I do understand that. And it was very difficult for this lady. But I find, and this is something that I do feel strongly about, John and Andrew, I do find that it's all about the birth mother. It's all about what they went through. And, you know, for anybody who's out there and who is a birth parent, I'm not diminishing what they went through. I certainly am not trying to ruffle any feathers. But for the child, the product of that, can somebody please just stop for a moment and think how that is for them Mm -hmm. and let them have a word in edgeways when you if you meet listen to them let them talk about how hard it was for them don't sit there and you know we're people too if if you had magical powers but I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you chose to use your magical powers to, to go back in time and, and not uh, have gone through that process, would you? No. No, no, no. Oh, Why? gosh. Why? No, it's, it's life and it's... Everybody has something. 
everybody has something. And I do not for one second believe that I am an unfortunate person. I have had, Andrew, unfortunate things happen to me, things that were outside of my control, but I am not helpless. I am not unfortunate. There are folks out there who have a lot worse than I've ever had. God love them. They don't have the capability to, or the guidance to get out of a situation yet, Mm -hmm. you know? So I don't think I would change anything because it's shaped me. It's made me who I am and I'm still here. So I don't feel sorry for myself. Yeah. And it it can be so difficult to compare your story to someone else's story and and compare pain and and Mm. challenges. Um, how did you it was clearly a dark time and and one of i i would assume one of the more difficult ordeals that that you went through it mm-hmm. at least in that period of your life how did you begin the the process of of kind of coping and and recovering and, and rebuilding identity hmm. um i'm still working on that so my first steps i did something that had never been available to me before which was therapy I went and I spoke to somebody um, and I processed a lot of what I had learned and I did several sessions and I talked about you know the bleakness of my childhood and the the fact that um, it was a little dark Um, people often think that I would imagine people often think that a child who is adopted oh it's a happy ever after but it's not there's still humans who are adopting them there's still flawed people who with the best of intentions so I had to process a lot of that as well um and therapy really helped I found it really really beneficial I didn't do it for a very very long time because I didn't for me I didn't want to wallow I didn't want to keep reliving or rehashing I wanted to talk about it I wanted the therapist to help me um so I actually moved from counseling to cognitive behavioral therapy because the therapy was great for me processing things and getting my thoughts straight but it didn't help with the anxiety that I was having around these issues and my GP so for anybody out there who is struggling with anxiety issues or coping with whatever is going on please please go and see your your GP please go and talk to somebody find somebody that you can speak to and don't go through it alone I was raised to go through things alone we all oh well sure somebody else has it as bad as you so buckle up and carry on just get over it Mm -hmm. but and I did that until I was in my 30s and sure that didn't really work out too well for me you know so cognitive behavioral therapy without a shadow of a doubt changed my life without a shadow of a doubt and and just just to give our our listeners a little background behind cognitive behavioral therapy from what I understand it's really changing how we relate to our thoughts oh yeah is, yeah. is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. I would say 
Um, I'm not an expert in the field, but I would say that it's retraining your brain and it's it's stopping in that moment when you feel the anxiety and asking yourself when right. you go through several steps, yes. you know, what is the feeling? Right. You know, what is the evidence for this feeling? What is the evidence against this feeling? And how can I otherwise look at this situation? So it's a lot of workbooks. It's homework. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily talk therapy. You have to help yourself. Mm. And I loved that. I loved that I could have some control over how I felt and how I moved through life. And I embraced it wholeheartedly. And within six sessions, I was a different person. And that is not a shadow. That's not a lie. That's the God's honest truth. I had something clicked in my mind. It resonated with me. And I was on the path to change Hmm. for the better. So it was changing that mindset, really, like going through that mental process, that that voice in the head, teaching it a new language, maybe even. Yeah. it, I I thought of you described yourself as a bit of a bookworm in school or like you, you liked the studies and, and mm. it was almost as if you took that same mentality right. to like, okay, I'll take this homework and I'll, I'll go through it and to retrain my own brain, which is, yeah. that's an amazing, mm. amazing process. It worked and it helped with, um, I had, I had been told by my GP that I was a very high functioning person, but I had generalized anxiety disorder which I was news to me and I was very surprised to hear that um, because I wasn't typically somebody one would look at as anxious or in any way shy or nervous about things Um, and how that manifested actually was funnily enough through a fear of dogs so I because I wasn't socially shy or it didn't manifest in any of those usual ways. So my anxiety went into, bizarrely, into a fear of dogs. <laughs> so I had this constant fear when I was walking through life, walking down the street, that a dog was going to come at me. So I always had that anxiety, that sense of dread, what's going to happen next? But that's how it manifested, if that makes any sense yeah, to anybody listening. Totally. And um, I think how that came about was when I was little, I loved dogs. Oh, I loved, 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 loved dogs. And we lived on a busy street and I would run out and I would pet the dogs going by. My mother had a, had a fear of dogs. So she would run out after me when I was little and say, don't touch that dog. That dog will bite you. The dog will bite you. So I learned to be scared because she was my mom. I learned to be scared of these animals that I was quite fond of. And of course, I took that to, with my anxiety, I took that to the extreme. So this this fear of dogs, although it sounds rather trivial, was a huge part of my life because I had to plan everything. I could not go into a friend's house if there was a dog there. Mm. I had to make sure phone head and say, you have to have the dog out of the house. The dog has to be somewhere I can't see it. I had to be walked, if there was a dog on a street, I would have to find somebody to walk me where I was going. I could not pass the dog. I would faint from Mm. fear. So I went to CBT and I tried lots of things. But when I went to ultimately went to CBT, um, uh, the therapist said to me, you know, what I think would help you is if you got a hamster. And I said, sorry, come again. (laughs) (laughs) What? And he said, I think if you got a hamster. 
And I said, oh, I don't want a little rat in my house. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not a rat. And he said, look, it's, they're so small. And if they do bite you or do reject you in some way, you will. It's, it's not going to be the end of the world. They're so small and you'll get used to the feel of their little bodies in your hand. So I did. I got a, a hamster who I was terrified of. Absolutely terrified of. Um, and my husband said to me, I was married at the time, my husband said, you have to deal with this because, you know, it's going to starve if you don't put your hand in and feed it. <laughs> so, and I'm not doing it for you. <clears throat> you need to do this. So he went, he went out one evening and I was sitting there. We just had it a day or so and he'd been helping out. And I thought, I have to give this little animal a meal. And I'm terrified. So I went on Google and Google <laughs> said, uh, sit in a dry bath with the cage, the animal inside the cage, drink until you're intoxicated and then open the cage. So I got a bottle of wine and I drank a lot of it. This advice could work for so many things. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I sat there and I was, you know, fully clothed. Everybody out there whose <clears throat> minds are gone into the gutter. So I was sitting there fully clothed and I was drinking and I was, you know, oh, he's starting to look really cute to me. So I opened the cage and let him run out and I took photos of him as he was running around me and I was stroking him and we were having fun because I was uninhibited. Yeah. And that was the beginning of my, a change for me. And I'm not saying that people should go and get drunk to overcome their fears, but it was something that was, it worked for me. And after that, he became my absolute darling and, um, yeah, I loved that pet. So we went on from, I moved from having a little hamster to within the space of probably a year and a half to having a Rottweiler in my house. Wow. And that I didn't know that I was fostering. So we fostered approximately 30 dogs over the space of a couple of years. Wow. Yeah. So the first one that we fostered, I said, I want the most decrepit dog with no, if, no teeth. And they actually gave me a dog with no teeth because I was so scared. Um, and we helped, we helped him for a few days and then I moved on to the next dog and then the next dog and then the next dog. And they gradually, I stopped asking for what I needed and just said, whichever dog needs the most help, send it to me. Um, yeah. So, so um, your greatest fear became one of your, the best, greatest outlets of your love. Oh, I John, mean, you took fear and turned it into love, oh, which is it was very poetic. One of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Well, and as you were talking about this, this fear, this irrational fear, and, and as we learn with anxiety, it's almost always an irrational fear um, that we have. This, the metaphor of you walking and, and being terrified that a random dog is just going to set its sights on you and just come running up and whatever you were imagining, bite you, mm -hmm. to jump on you, take you down. Um, all this kind of stuff. This, this is also a metaphor for anxiety. Just these random thoughts and feelings that are just going to come at us mm. without our control. And, and it just seems to me, it, perhaps it just was manifesting itself in the, in the form of a dog. Mm. You know, but it was just this idea of this, this fear of um, just this, un, this uncontrollable thing that, mm. that's stalking us. Mm. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Anyways, that's, that's kind of what I was picturing as you were sharing. Yeah. That's exactly it. No. Hit the nail on the head. And so you you said that it was kind of an example, a representation of the anxiety and, and it, it came through the channel of the, the fear of 
of the canine was that a part of the the battle against the anxiety or was that a obviously it was a formative um, mm. and a big step in that process or did it shift at all or, or how did your um, experience with anxiety change after that yeah um, so my relationship with anxiety um, improved when I when I was working through the CBT and got the hamster so the more and then when I started fostering the dogs the more I went through that process whilst working on my cognitive behavioral therapy and telling myself this animal needs help it's not there to reject me it's not going to hurt me I need to look after this dog this is my responsibility um I became less anxious in general Mm -hmm. of course because the thing that I had demonized was not scary to me anymore it was something to be embraced yeah I love the word embraced because that is the key to, to getting out of anxiety is to literally embrace it oh, yeah. instead of push it away. And so just this this visual of you embracing a dog, it's like embracing your fear, mm. literally. And uh, and then it melts away. Mm. I, mm. I, I love that. I think that'll be powerful for, for listeners. You told a story after we had finished recording last week about a, a Saturday Night Live cast member. I was thinking of that one. Do you want to you share oh, that do, one? Do, do, do. Yeah. So um, Bill Hader. Oh, yes. Do you know Bill Hader? Yeah, <laughs> we all know Bill that. Hader, the great comedian, the yeah. Saturday Night Live. And his uh, new show, Barry, is Andy one of my favorite shows of all time. <laughs> Barry, check it out, folks. It's about a hitman who finds community through the local theater. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy gold. It's amazing. Well, anyways, unbeknownst to most people, Bill Hader s- struggled with severe, severe anxiety, crippling panic attacks while yeah. he was on Saturday Stage Night Live. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Saturday Night Live is like the you know probably the worst case scenario for somebody who's who suffers from anxiety um everything's live and and it's right there and and so he talked about um having a full-blown panic attack mid saturday night live i don't know if you've heard this story and um the the person that was hosting that time was um was uh what's his jeff bridges jeff bridges and so uh, Bill Hader was doing his uh, doing his his set, and he felt the panic coming on. And and what he said he used to do when he felt like an anxiety or panic attack coming is he would just kind of put his hand to his face. Mm-hmm. It was as a way of protecting himself, perhaps just kind of going and in, falling into himself. And so he was starting to do that, and the crew members are like, "Don't like don't do that. Put down your hand. What are you doing?" Well, he somehow got through it, and they just sort of ran off stage to his dressing room and broke down. I mean, he was he was you know sobbing and. And just struggling with the moment when all of a sudden he hears a little rap on the door opens it up and there's jeff bridges and he's like he's like well what's up bill and uh and bill was like you know just started off just oh no it's nothing nothing but then he saw like he actually cared he wanted to know what it was so he began to tell him i, I believe it or not I've, it's embarrassing but i've suffered with anxiety attacks and, and panic attacks ever since i started and and jeff's just like listening and he's nodding and then he just walks up to him and he says Oh man, he's like anxiety. He's like that's just your little buddy. He's like you got to put your arm around that little buddy. Oh. He's like just mm. put your arm around him. It's all good. He just needs a little bit of love. Mm-hmm. Like he just he said it in a way of like he's always going to be with you. Yeah. He's your little buddy. So mm-hmm. make peace with him. Like you said, embrace him. Yeah. Don't push him away. Don't see him around the corner and be like, "Oh no, he's coming." Like he's stalking you like a dog, right? He's 
it's, it's a little buddy that you put your arm around and mm-hmm. just say, okay, you're coming along for the ride. Well, we might as well make peace. And he said that really transformed things for him. And, and he just had said it so matter-of-factly. He's like, mm. oh, that's just your little buddy. Mm. You can just bring him into the bath with a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> Dry bath. That's right. <laughs> Put your clothes on. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was powerful. Mm, that's yeah. a great story. Mm-hmm. So, Christine, you described yourself earlier before we started recording as a bit of a late bloomer. Mm. And I'm wondering where along this process, along your story, you, you felt like you burst into bloom mm. or, or how that how that came to be yeah yeah I was actually uh, quite a, a late bloomer through no fault of my own when I was 20 and you know I was on this trajectory that my father had set for me when I was 17 and I was saving I was going to my dad and I were going to buy property together. We were starting on our, I was on a, a good journey, I would say, really good journey. And I had my life planned out. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to study law. I wanted to specialize in property law, um, influenced by my father. Um, it was, I was going to work with him, buy homes, sell them. I was going to get married. I was going to have children and I was going to adopt some children because that's something that was important to me. Mm. So I had it all figured out. And then uh, when I was working in the bank one day, my hands were really, really sore. And I thought it was from carrying the bags of coin or whatnot. And it didn't go away. So within a week or so, I think I went to the doctor and um, I was sent for blood work. And it turned out that I had rheumatoid arthritis, seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, which is an autoimmune disorder. It is debilitating, crippling, and steals your life from you. So I was sat down by two doctors. I was there with my mom, and they essentially told me, two consultants, not to expect anything from life, that there was a large chance that I would be in a wheelchair by the time I was 25. So goodbye dreams and off you go thank you very much for seeing us today that was it I was sent home with a prescription for medication I was not very happy with this (laughs) I wasn't prepared for it I went through stages of grief I would say over the next couple of years I refused to take the medication I refused to acknowledge that this had happened I just pushed through the pain and was completely in denial. Denial was a great, great friend to me at that stage of my life because I was young and I did not want to have my life taken away, my health taken away. And I was ashamed, Mm -hmm. deeply, deeply, deeply ashamed that I had this illness. I told nobody save for my best friends. Why were you ashamed of it? because it made me ugly and unattractive. Hmm. It, in my mind, it made me less of a person. In my mind, it was something that I thought people would laugh at me because I said that I had it. And you don't talk about what you have, you just get on with it. So 
yeah it was a, it was an interesting couple of years i was i don't really remember them <laughs> um i think i i kind of checked out of life i didn't have any aim anymore i didn't want anything because i was told not to expect anything so when i was about 24 25 I was taking the medicine. I was starting to, you know, play the game a little bit. But um, my disease, it really, really started to get bad. And I was put on really, really heavy um, medication, uh, chemotherapy drugs. And over the next year and a half, I went downhill to the point that I was unrecognizable to myself physically mentally emotionally i was bedridden um but i refused to give up my job my work sean gallagher and company solicitors i started as their receptionist and eventually worked my way up to senior paralegal they they asked me one day what was going on with me i think they thought i was a drug addict or something and i didn't want to tell them because i did not want to lose my job so i broke down i told them what was happening Mm -hmm. and they were incredibly supportive and are still incredibly supportive to this day. So I would come home from work, I'd go to bed, I would lie there in pain, I would get up in the morning, my mother would dress me for work and my dad would drive me to work. And that was my day, that was it. Um, the medication was very, very, it, it didn't agree with me. I understand that a lot of people find this to be of benefit, but this particular drug did not work for me. It made me quite ill and I felt quite sick and I lost a lot of weight. My hair was falling out. Um, I didn't socialize. I lost a lot of my friends and I blamed. I was angry with them at the time because they had abandoned me, yet more people abandoning me as I saw it. Whereas I now understand that that's difficult for people to cope with. One minute you're this person and then you're something else. How does how do you react to that when you're 24 mm-hmm. and you're just out for the good time and you're going to work and you know you just want fun? How do you cope with that happening to somebody? So I would see friends walking by because we lived on a busy street, like I said before. I would see them walking by my house, you know, trying not to be seen by anybody inside. And I, w- I would see them. I want to I want to deal with with. I think you bring up a very very important point about how the people around you were reacting and i i I see i've seen that happen um somebody um perhaps um someone even loses somebody someone dies and people don't they don't go to the funeral they don't talk to them they see them in the in the grocery store and they turn around because they're they're terrified Mm. of adding to their grief Mm. right they're terrified of saying the wrong thing Mm. so looking back on that um what would have been helpful for you at the time i really like that you asked me that because this is part of my message today if i had been if i had been given the opportunity to speak about it to somebody there was nothing mm-hmm. there just was nothing there was nobody There were no pamphlets. There were no 
here's a counsellor, phone them and talk about it. There was nothing. It was take the medicine and go away. Deal mm. with it. Yeah. And that's my society that I grew up in. You just get on with it. Deal with it. There's worse off than you. And I did. Because that's how you did it. Looking back, definitely, John, if I had had somebody to talk to, to tell me that I had nothing to be ashamed of, that I did nothing wrong, that I was not a bad person. I believed this happened to me because I had done something wrong, perhaps. Yeah. And even if you had a friend come by and say, I know you're struggling, I feel ill-equipped of what to say, but I just thought I'd at least sit with you. Perhaps that would have even been enough. But I wouldn't expect that of somebody, that presence of mind and maturity of somebody so young. Right. But I would have liked to have an adult reach out and say, this is somebody you can talk to or you need help. You need to talk about this to deal with it. Just medicine alone does not help. And Mm. medicine was ultimately a gift to me as the years went by. But people need more than that. People need help. Mm somebody to talk to so what was your turning point do you think in terms of moving from a place of ill health into a into the next stage Mm. of your life very clear memory of that Andrew um I my work helped me they petitioned the hospital to get me onto biologic drugs um they threatened to sue if I did not get off the medicine that I was on which wasn't helping me they said we know there's stuff out there that you're not giving her she needs this medicine within two weeks I was on biologic and I had to self-inject the first time I did that um, that injection they show you how to do it I took it snatched it from the nurse and plunged it into my leg Hmm. and could not wait to get that into my body I wanted to do it myself. I wanted it. I wanted it now. I wanted my health. I wanted to be better. And I was. Never 100%. That's not going to happen. This is a disease that is incurable. It never goes away. Um, there was a poem written about it that said, I will die before it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to feel better relatively quickly started to put on a bit of weight my hair was growing back I was starting to get my confidence back I was doing more hours at work I went over to my best friend's house and she sat me down and she said listen here you I need to show you something and she took out a photograph of me just a few months ago at my godson's communion I was too sick to go to the church which was steps away steps away I was too sick I managed to make it out of the bed that day and I was propped up in a chair and she said I did not realize how sick you were until I saw this picture and I looked at the picture and I looked like an exhumed corpse Mm. it was quite shocking actually and she said let that be a lesson to you now you've got a second chance now because she saw that I was just going back to myself and I was probably just going to go oh isn't this great but she said don't don't take this for granted you've got a second chance and she was sobbing she was in tears and I took that to heart and I realized that I had a second chance weeks before months before 
it was all over as far as I was concerned. I didn't exist in the world. I was a thing that was just going to waste away. Whereas now it's, it was a miracle, an absolute miracle. So, so part, I'm a bit confused on how this, this, you called it a biologic, mm -hmm. this, uh, the new um, drug that you gave yourself, this existed, but you hadn't been given it. Like it, it's so transformative to your story, but why did it take so long for you to get it? Like I'm, I'm wondering, because, some of our listeners might be wondering yeah, that. Um, I think there, there is a process. I understand that um, a person with rheumatoid arthritis or any other autoimmune disorder needs to go through. So there's medications that are, there's a protocol. I had not advocated for myself well enough. Okay. At that stage. And thankfully I had... I had help from my mom as well, but they didn't listen to her. It was only when I had somebody who was in authority or seen as an authority figure um, advocate for me that things changed. But being an advocate for myself and learning about what's out there and what I can do for myself rather than just accepting that this is the way it is, that really helped. Yeah, great point. Um, so yeah, I went on to do um, lots of fun and crazy things then. I <laughs> I managed a band. I uh, You say you managed a band? Yeah, I managed a band. Do tell. No, no, there's music videos out there and I was in them, so no. <laughs> really? Okay. Now we got some show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, I went back to the office, of course, but I wanted, I wanted to experience everything. I wanted everything. I wanted just to throw myself into yeah. life. And I did. I took helicopter flying lessons. Really? I went and um, took three months off work. My work was so generous to me. So generous. And I said, I, I'm going off to the Edinburgh Fringe. And I'm going to manage a troupe of comedians over there with the team. So off I went. And then I worked for David Strasman, the ventriloquist. I loved growing up my films, my books and my music. They were what I escaped into. I wanted to be part of that world. Yeah. Um, whilst, whilst always having the grounding of the office which was great and that support network but they allowed me to go and experience life and to actually just enjoy myself I just get the sense that now as you're speaking about it like you've just come alive like it's yeah. it, I can see it in your eyes and your in your posture even it's just like it's apparent that that it seems like a, a rebirth. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. And and perhaps we talked a little bit earlier about your identity and, and how that mm. was such a challenge and and you were imagining a different story of, of the parents. And I'm wondering if that, those months where you were just experiencing everything, do, do you feel that that was when you began forming your, your identity as it is today? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. I don't know if I thought of it as that way at the time. I thought of it as... I think I thought of it as finding myself in a sense. Little cheesy term. But I did. I think I, I wanted to find out who I was. I wanted to make up for lost time. Really is what I wanted to do, yeah. Andrew. I wanted to make up for lost time. I was raring to go absolutely raring to go 
and I couldn't wait to be out there experiencing this and that and the other and um, and that's when I started my my volunteering as well um, because I mentioned earlier on that I was raised in a f- household which valued community and contribution to community that's something very important to me so I didn't want to just be all about me me experiencing this and that and not doing anything for anybody else what's the point well in one of the places you volunteer for is the Clement Center yeah which is which is helps people who struggle with developmental disabilities and things yes yes yeah. Clement Center Society uh, I'm a board director I'm very fortunate to sit on the board mm. um, a role I take very very seriously yeah for sure it's incredible for me to be able to be somebody who is one of those unseen people who are helping other people Mm -hmm. just like when I was little and I had people who I never saw who were working behind the scenes who were helping me so to be able to do that for other people is for me a gift I love sitting on that seat I don't believe in being a board member of any organization or being involved in any organization just to say that I do it so people think I'm a good person or to be a warm keep the seat warm I want to be involved my question to the society when they approach me is why me what could I possibly give what is it that you want from me what is it that I can do you feel that I can give because I want to be useful. <laughs> well, and what I love about your story, Christine, is some of your greatest pains and your greatest challenges, you've actually flipped them and used them as strengths. Mm. And so, for instance, the fear we talked about with dogs has now become something where you've saved dozens and dozens and dozens of dogs and, and they in turn fill you with probably um, joy. And and then growing up with devel- developmental disability like like you had, now you're advocating for other mm. people who do. So you didn't allow those to define you. In fact, you took them, stood on them, and and now use them to bring you know hope and love mm. into the world. And and to me that that is, I think, the goal of what what do we talk about on the obstacle course well that's the hero's journey yeah that is literally the hero's journey which we haven't brought up in a while well i just did yeah well done (laughs) (laughs) i'm not a hero or heroine well i i mean you may not self-describe as that um but the the concept of the hero's journey is that uh, we all have the ability to to be the hero of our own oh yeah of our own experience lovely i really like that yeah isn't that lovely Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering if you could look, uh, if you could give advice to a younger version of, of yourself, uh, perhaps um, when you were struggling with ill health or or, mm. or before you had um, kind of re refound yourself as you described it. What what advice might that be? Hmm. Very interesting question. Um. I would sit on the side of, I'm picturing myself lying there in one of my darkest moments where I could hear everybody downstairs upset and talking about me and crying. 
and I'm lying there in burnt like I was being burned alive the pain was so bad this is at the worst it's the pinnacle of my experience with rheumatoid arthritis and I remember this sense of peace coming over me that I could die now and I'd be okay with that I was at peace with it I didn't want Andrew necessarily to die I wanted the pain to go away of course but I felt like a person who was in when people say they were happy to they slipped away mm-hmm. I was at peace and I was at peace with that knowledge that n- nothing that I wanted was ever going to happen I was at peace with this is just how my life goes and this is just life it was really a moment of clarity this is this is it and I thought yeah I could just slip away and it could be better for those people downstairs if that happens my family but I kept getting up because that's just what I do and I think I would have liked to have come into the room at that moment sat down on the bed and said to myself you don't know your arse from your elbow your father was right Um, (laughs) you know deep down that there's more to life than this and you were always an optimist you always expected more than what was expected of you and if you and you'll make it through you will make it through this is just one of those experiences and this could happen again and it did actually happen to me again I did get sick again 11 years later when I first moved to Canada um, for 15 months is similar scenario and it could keep happening but you'll just have to keep going and keep advocating for yourself keep asking for help don't be scared to ask for help you don't have to go it alone it's not a sign of weakness ask for help mm-hmm. it's a sign of strength and there'll be good days and there'll be bad days but that's life there's a there's a set of three questions that one of our past guests, Linda, um, put out to us. And one of those questions, and perhaps as, as a way of maybe bringing things to a close, one of these questions I want to ask you, um, and, and perhaps um, it'll be a gift for our, our listeners as well. Uh, what she asks is, what's the best possible thing that could happen here? And, and as you reflect upon, you, you know, you came in to our studio about an hour and a bit ago, uh, with some nerves, wondering, wondering if your story would connect, and wondering how it would be told. And you've been very eloquent, very authentic, honest. Um, the emotion has been there. Um, so many great points. Perhaps, can you reflect on this question? What's the best possible thing that that perhaps this episode could could give our listeners? Mm. What a responsibility to have to answer that question. Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. So so take your time. It is a huge question. Usually Andrew's the one who pulls out the big guns at There's the end. I'm impressed. Switch it up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning from him. <laughs> Keep each other on your toes. Yeah. Um, anybody who is listening, I think, okay. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that question because that was it's something I find difficult to answer mm. I don't have 
a premeditated script. I don't, words are powerful. I want to say the right thing and I most likely won't say the right thing. (laughs) I want to be here today. It's difficult for me to share my personal story. Like Mm -hmm. I said, I don't come from a, I come from a culture where that's seen as weak. A lot of cultures are like that. You don't talk about yourself. You don't feel sorry for yourself. You don't talk about your, anything that's happened to you. You just keep going. But anybody who's out there, that's not actually the way to go. If you're struggling with an invisible disease, like I am, I live with that day to day. I look very healthy. Mm-hmm. I look well for my age. It's difficult to look past that and see through my love of life and my joy that I am. It takes an awful lot to get me where I am every single day. A lot of serious aggressive medication um cancer medicines whatnot so before you before you look at other people and assume that they're lucky or they have it all together or they have all the answers try and show a little understanding a little compassion we don't know what other people have to do to get out of bed in the morning we know what we have to do to get out of bed in the morning and if you're somebody who is struggling with getting out of bed in the morning don't be afraid to ask for help it's not weakness it's a sign of strength Mm. i don't know if i'm saying the right words but that's my message and I'm here today to speak to that. And you did powerfully, and, and we thank you. Yeah, and you were reluctant to call yourself a hero, which is fine. You did mention earlier, perhaps a little bit in jest, that you had some superpowers. Mm. And <laughs> If I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, you don't have to, but I, I think you shared uh, some of those with us today and... and I really appreciated it, and that strength coming from uh, from the north side of Dublin mm-hmm. w- was mm-hmm. shining through. And I want to really applaud your your courage. And we could tell that at times it it was a it was a challenge to share the story and to um, overcome any nervousness or or fears that might have been present. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really want to uh, yeah, applaud you and, and appreciate you for doing that. And um, You're going to make me cry. <laughs> well, that's okay in this room sometimes. Um, we want the emotion to be real. And, and, and your story was, and it was very much um, appreciated and, and powerful. Hmm. Thank you, Oskelga. Hmm. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Thanks for being here. I hope it's of value to somebody. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. 
How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm-hmm. For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.